0: Welcome to the closet. Make yourself at home. Pleasantries aside, it is kind of a societal expectation to formally introduce myself and welcome you to this episode zero of Closet Dwellers, a podcast that I hope will give all three listeners that are not either close friends or blood relatives of mine a little insight into what it's like to be an Airbnb hostess, particularly one who rents out a room in her own home, and even more specifically, when that room happens to be. A hallway closet. So hello, I'm Rachel. And although you will be treated to a meaty portion of indulgent oversharing very shortly, I will summarize my entire existence thusly. I'm a 36 year old American high school English teacher who occasionally moonlights as a life model for artists. And I've lived here in Scotland for more or less the last 20 years. I give great importance to oral hygiene, but commit little time to makeup. I mean, particularly right now. I can count to 10 and sing the days of the week in Indonesian and I am an Aquarius. I think that's probably enough. Now to kick off the series, I think it would be prudent to tell the story of the conception of the idea of renting out my hallway closet. If you're very much a too-long-didn't-read kind of person, I can save you some time here by summing up the catalyst for the closet room's conception in three very short words. I was broke. Guys, 2020 was going to be my year. Undoubtedly, there won't be a person who has not had to endure disappointment in the wake of this pandemic. And I don't want to make this all about me, but also that's a lie. And I'm basically on the brink of just walking into the sea at this point. I almost feel like I owe the world kind of a collective apology because it seems as though every time I make big plans in my life... Something goes wrong and I clearly have not learned my lesson and I do not respect the curse that is burdening my entire existence exponentially and now yours. So I'm sorry. But to understand what I mean by this, there is a much more complex series of events of an equally complex level of misfortune that ultimately led to my superhost status. And yes, I am showing off. I would say I hit rock bottom. The moment. Uh, my debit card was declined trying to buy coffee in the summer of 2018. Now, I realize you don't generally just wake up with crippling debt, and I, I take full responsibility for the reckless financial decisions that led me to that moment in the coffee shop. But I will say those choices were a direct result of me checking out of my own life for a lengthy period, following a number of things that were, much like this pandemic, very much out with my control so allow me to rewind. Guys, 2017 was gonna be my year. I had been given the go-ahead from my job as a high school teacher to take a two-year sabbatical, during which I planned to tramp the earth by foot or by bike and take my own path and write a book and try living in different places and learn to drive and basically just say yes to everything. As a huge David Bowie fan, My world crumpled in January 2016, when my future husband, unbeknownst to him, also unbeknownst to his wife, was taken from this earth too soon. And I hopped on board the 2016 is the worst bandwagon. I mean, it claimed Prince too, so 2016 sucked for sure. But if I had known just how much 2017 would blow, I would not have wished for its predecessor to pack up and leave quite so soon. Now, before I throw myself a pity party for one, which you're all obviously invited to spectate, I want to say that I've had a great life. My childhood, though not without the standard bullying and social awkwardness and insecurity that's pretty much unavoidable when you're a fat goth kid in the 90s, my childhood was a blast. I had hobbies, I was passionate about them, I had tons of friends, we had lots of fun, I was generally pretty happy. Yeah, bad things happened, but bad things happened to everyone and I've always been surrounded by good people, and my parents raised me to be resilient. Thankfully, I'd say that's no different today. I was born with a scar on the retina of my left eye. My parents used to call it my special eye, and um, they only discovered that something was wrong with it when they noticed the effect that a flash, a camera flash, had on my eyes in photographs. So in photos where people have red eye, I would only have one eye that was glowing red. The other eye would glow back kind of white or pale yellow. So as an aside, red eye, the scourge of family photos until the prevalence of Photoshop-esque tools is caused when a flash is used in low lighting. As the pupil doesn't have time to contract, the bright light is reflected off the retina back to the camera. And apparently the red color can be attributed to the rich blood supply to the eye. Any kind of anomaly in the reflected colors can be indicative of a tumor behind the eye. And there have been loads of cases of things like cancer being picked up by someone noticing one of these irregularities in a photo. As it turned out, I didn't have cancer, but what the doctor believes is congenital toxoplasmosis, which is a disease caused when a parasite is transmitted from a mother to her fetus. Now, the effects here can range from being asymptomatic, which is great, to progressive vision, hearing, motor skills, and cognitive problems, or at the more extreme end of the spectrum to miscarriage or stillbirth. So, I guess, thanks, Mom. Growing up, I never knew that my vision was really any different from anyone else's until I was a little bit older and realized that I didn't see in 3D. If I knew what an object was, say a basketball, because, you know, I've held a basketball. I could gauge how far away it was because I knew how big it was. But on more than one occasion, I frantically swatted at the bug that was inches away from my face only to discover that what I was really swatting at was an airplane in the sky, probably tens or hundreds of miles in the distance. It was an infrequent not hundreds of miles, that's it's unrealistic, tens of miles. It was an infrequent source of amusement for my friends. Now, if I were to try and describe what vision I do have in my left eye, I would ask you to imagine a window. So in a normal eye, the glass of this window would be completely transparent and you could see everything outside with clarity. As you become a little bit more weathered, there might be a few smudges on the glass, there might be a chip here and there, it might warp ever so slightly, but essentially it's not really noticeable unless you're actively looking for them. So things like floaters. Now, in my left eye, imagine the glass of this window is frosted and warped so that you get an idea of the general shape and color of an object, but there's also this big gray patch in the middle, as though a I don't know, a group of troublesome teenagers came by and spray-painted a careless circle in the middle of the glass. So you can't see anything out of this big blob in the center. This big blob with my eye does compensate by sometimes taking on some of the colors that surround it, but that's not particularly helpful. Basically, if I want to cross a road, and if for some ridiculous reason I was wearing an eye patch on my right eye, I would be able to notice a car coming towards me and I could tell you roughly where on the color spectrum it was, but there's no way I would be able to read the license plate or recognize the driver's face or see the driver's head if I was looking directly at them because it would have disappeared into that black void where my focal point should exist. So as you might imagine, I'm pretty precious about my eyesight. School science classes, I was 100% on board with those stylish safety goggles. In fact, I probably had a backup pair in my pocket. I won't go out on my bike unless I have some kind of eye protection. So you can probably imagine the sheer panic that arose in me when in October, 2016, I woke up to find that I couldn't really see properly out of my right eye. The good one. The one that actually works. I'd spent the previous night, October 21st, on a date with a sculptor who lived in a makeshift shed on a plot of land about 10 miles north of the city I live in in Scotland, who I'd seen a handful of times. I had suggested spending the night at his place because the Orionid meteor shower was meant to be at its peak that night, and I have a pretty healthy obsession with outer space and stars and nature. And living away from city light pollution his place would have been ideal for stargazing at least it would have been ideal if in typical scottish fashion it hadn't clouded over and started to rain now unwilling to give up we had a look at the forecast online and we ended up driving nearly an hour and a half inland to chase what we thought would be a clear patch of sky and once we eventually found it We parked up, we put down the blanket, we lay on the ground, and we waited for magic to happen in the sky. But we were also aware that the clouds were coming in very, very quickly. Now, I'm glad to say our tenacity paid off, and we were witness to a couple of kind of mediocre shooting stars, followed by something that was really worth waiting for. So it was this one big one, and it seemed to shatter into several smaller pieces and these smaller pieces rained down in the sky like they were the branches of a weeping willow that was on fire it was kind of magical and then the clouds rolled in and we called it a night when i woke up on the morning of october 22nd and i looked at my phone to try and see what time it was the bright light from the screen was really really uncomfortable to look at it seemed difficult to focus on on the text on on the screen I put this down to being a little bit groggy, not getting a good night's sleep, being in a really dark room, and I went about getting ready for the day. I got dropped off at the train station, but I started to feel this sense of dread grow from a knot in my stomach on that homeward journey when I looked outside and I noticed that the line of the horizon was kind of blurred and glowing. I also had to squint because the daylight was really uncomfortable on my eyes. I messaged a few of my friends and they reminded me that there was a member of our triathlon club who was a GP and also had retrained as an optician. So I got in touch with her, told her what was going on. And her answer was pretty much exactly what a raging hypochondriac does not want to hear. Her reply said, be seen immediately. Well, that's going to make me feel calm. So in a state of mild hysteria... I managed to set up an emergency appointment at my optician. I went through all the tests they had, the the fields test, um, eye pressure, color blindness, reading out the letters on those increasingly tiny lines, and even had photos taken of the back of my eyes. Every single result showed that my right eye was textbook perfect, that there was nothing structurally abnormal about it. But I knew that something wasn't normal. Still, the results made me feel mildly comforted, so I decided to try and ignore it as like a minor inconvenience in life and just get on with my day. Keen for night to come in the hopes that I'd wake up and it would all be fine. Well, I woke up and although it wasn't all fine, I did sense a slight improvement. So I ended up going cycling with some friends as I had planned to do, and I enjoyed the last day of my two-week October break before my return to school, assuming that whatever it was, it was just just one of those weird freak body malfunctions. Monday morning to my immeasurable relief. Everything seemed to be back to normal. And I walked to work with probably a little more enthusiasm than is traditional for uh, the first day back at work. I'd arranged to grab a coffee with one of my co-workers that morning. And as we were walking to... Um, as we were walking to the school, I noticed that the dying leaves that had fallen from the trees at the entrance to the building were doing that same flickering and glowing that the horizon was doing on that train journey a couple of days before. Hey, is the sunlight doing weird things to those leaves? I asked her cautiously. Mmm, nah, they look normal to me, she replied. Well, Shit. With rising terror, I booked another emergency appointment at the optician, but had exactly the same results. At this point, however, my vision was worsening, so reading everything on a, anything on a screen became really difficult. Things were starting to blur. It seemed like the brightness had gone out of colors. For example, red looked kind of like a gungy brown, and green looked also like a gungy brown, and it was basically as though someone had put a dimmer. On daylight. The rest of the week was a haze. It involved several trips to the doctor, trips to a and trips back to the optician, and my eyesight continued to deteriorate. And I became increasingly terrified, but also frustrated by the lack of answers that I was getting. About two weeks after this whole ordeal began, I finally started to get a couple of answers. The main reason that all of my previous tests had showed nothing but a perfectly healthy eye and and no abnormalities in the structure is because the issue wasn't with the eye, it was with the nerve that is behind the eye, so the optic nerve. What it was suspected that I had is called optic neuritis, which is basically just a fancy term for inflammation of the optic nerve. The effects can include pain behind the eye, vision loss in the affected eye, visual field loss, loss of color vision, and you might also experience flashing lights. It was also mentioned that it could be one of the first presenting symptoms of multiple sclerosis. But at that point, all I really cared about was being able to see again. So when the specialist told me that it it was likely to be optic neuritis and that it was also likely that my vision would improve, it is an aggressive understatement to say that I was relieved. Despite that relief, it was definitely stressed to me that this was going to be a slow recovery process. And for the next two months, I I rarely left my apartment. It was a little bit like lockdown, except one could say better because friends could visit me. Friends, in fact, regularly did visit me. They brought food, some of them even cooked for me. Um, Some took me out for walks. My dad flew over from the States for a couple of weeks to, to look after me. But sure enough, gradually my eyesight did start to improve enough where I could go back to um, work with some adjustments. And obviously that meant that my sabbatical was put on hold. Patience is not one of my virtues, but I guess under the circumstances, I had very little choice. Over the course of the next several months, I began to notice very, very slow improvements to my vision. And nearly a year on, I was at the point where it was as good as it was going to get. I'd say right now I have about 90% of my original vision, but I also have a whole new catalog of visual anomalies that add a little spice to my life. For example, I have particular issues with lights. If I'm out for too long on a sunny day, I experience what I imagine snow blindness is like, where I need to remove myself from the source, so close my eyes or retreat into a dark space to allow my vision to kind of recover and return to normal. Now, I experienced this in the beginning stages of my eyesight recovery um, in a much more noticeable way, and I could only really be outside for about five minutes before that would happen, whereas now it's over the course of 20-25 minutes, so I guess that's progress. I'm also often dazzled by things like LED lighting or traffic lights, so I'm now the owner of some pretty fetching green tinted specs that I can wear when I'm riding my bike, These block out a lot of the sunlight and it means that I'm not dazzled by things like brake lights um, to the point where I can't see well enough to navigate away from dangers on the road, like potholes or cars or other cyclists or stray chickens. Another issue I have is with long lasting after images, or I guess you could call them vision hangovers. Nothing abnormal in itself until you consider how long they last. So it's kind of like when you look at a really bright light and then you look away and you have to kind of blink a couple of times to get rid of that. Or you kind of see that, that ghost image of, of whatever bright thing you looked at. So not completely atypical, but for me, it takes closer to one or two minutes for that to go away. Similarly, if I'm in a particularly visually stimulating environment, um, sometimes the ghosts of things that I had already been looking at start to cloak what I'm actually looking at and everything becomes a little bit of a jumbled mess. Again this is pretty easily remedied by removing the source, so closing my eyes for a little while um, to wipe the slate clean. So basically blinking profusely is like shaking all of the lines away on an edge a sketch And that's how I see clearly again. But I can read, I can work, I can hike, I can people watch over a coffee, so let's not make this an itemized list of everything that could be better with my eyesight. What is important is that the optometrist and the neurologist that I saw during this ordeal both thought that my symptoms were atypical of optic neuritis and they wanted to do a couple of tests just to determine with absolute clarity that that was what had been going on with my vision. One of these tests definitely wouldn't seem out of place in Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. It basically involved putting electrodes on my head and most notably in between my actual eyeball and my upper and lower eyelids. And this was a test to measure how quickly my brain picked up signals from my eyes. Essentially, I had to stare at a TV screen with black and white checkerboard patterns of varying sizes where the black and white squares would swap color or size every second or so with no regularity. And I was instructed to stare with great intent at this tiny, tiny red dot in the middle of the screen for about an hour with electrodes stuck to my eyeballs in case that particular fact had been overlooked by anyone. The result was that yes, there was damage to the optic nerve, And yes, signals were reaching my brain at a delayed pace. And this is when my soiree with a neurologist became a little bit more somber and the topic of multiple sclerosis resurfaced. Now, John Steinbeck writes in East of Eden that there's more beauty in truth, even if it's a dreadful beauty. And believing in the beauty of truth, I opted to get tests done, which I was told could do one of two things. One, positively confirm a diagnosis of MS or... 2. Nothing useful at all. So, having previously undergone an MRI during the whole going blind ordeal, some scarring on my brain had been identified. If more scarring were to turn up on a second MRI, then it would no longer be considered a clinically isolated syndrome, but multiple instances of things going wrong in my brain. Additionally, I agreed to a spinal tap, which was disappointing for two reasons. One, it is nowhere near as much fun as the movie, I can assure you. And two, the nurse did not appreciate the fact that I wore a spinal tap t-shirt, nor did she even chortle slightly when I asked her if she had painkillers that went up to 11. Anyway, the results of both tests were eventually revealed to me on September 11th, 2017, when I received my official diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. And so I ask you, how would you expect somebody to react to being told that they had an incurable degenerative disease that had a pretty healthy 25% chance of landing them at some point in their life in a wheelchair, particularly when that person's passion, their livelihood was entirely dependent. On their independence and when traveling and hiking in remote locations and not being in a fucking wheelchair was what they were all about if you'd guessed that that person would be throwing herself a self-indulgent pity party for one then you'd be absolutely right the truth is that i'd had time i'd spent the months leading up to that diagnosis mentally coming to terms with the fact that i probably did have ms and I was kind of okay with it. It meant that I had an answer to what had been going wrong with, you know, various things, my vision, more recently, my balance. And this knowledge was helped, not least, by realizing that it wasn't motor neuron disease like Stephen Hawking, which is what I had originally thought I'd had, and having just watched Theory of Everything. I'm not ashamed to admit that there were one or two moments spent ugly crying in the shower where I was basically trying to come up with a five-year plan or like a hit list of everything I wanted to do before I became too feeble. And anyway, very, very happy to realize that that is not what I had. Now, I've always been impulsive and stubborn and at times a firm believer that the best solution to a problem is ignoring it because it makes it go away. And so... In the run-up to this diagnosis, what I had planned was a hiking trip with my, my buddy Lauren during the summer. Now, I remember having gone to Mount Rainier as a kid, and I remember thinking it was one of the most beautiful places that existed in the world. And so I had convinced her to book flights to Seattle, and what we had planned to do was fly into Seattle, stay at my high school friend's ex-boyfriend's little brother's apartment on a sofa... Uh, to save money, obviously, and then go hiking for four or five days around Mount Rainier and then somehow get to Portland where we would work out accommodation for a couple of days. I had another high school buddy who lived there with his wife and we would kind of tentatively worked out a plan to stay there. It was gonna be an adventure. It was gonna be an adventure that was gonna be cheap. And it was mostly gonna be cheap because we were going to be sleeping in my tent. Now this friend had never been camping before And I wanted to reassure her that it was going to be absolutely fine. So another mutual friend of ours was having his stag party and we were invited along. And part of that involved camping, but more like diet camping. So it was at a plot with really flat lands. They had showers with warm water, places where you could wash dishes. It was literally 200 feet from a pub, like it could not have been more civilized And yet I could tell the next morning that everything about camping, she hated. But I was not going to make it easy for her. And so I could tell she wanted to speak to me about the trip that we'd already booked and paid for. And I thought, again, I'll ignore the problem. Anyway, eventually, as this camping holiday got closer and closer, she had to tell me that camping is not what she wanted to do. And... And so I said, look, I know it's fine and I don't mind. I said that she could help me by driving me out to the middle of nowhere and then in four or five days we would arrange for me to be picked up and I would just go and do it by myself and she could do whatever she wanted in Seattle. Now she wasn't particularly happy with this and she said, you know what, considering you can't see properly, your balance is all over the place and things like physical activity and heat make that worse. I am not happy with you going hiking on your own. And so always want to try and find a way to overcome obstacles that life presents me. What I did is I paid for Tinder and changed my location to Seattle and also Portland. And I swiped through pretty much saying yes to any profile where they had a tent. And the first one that matched up, I said, hey, gave him some dates my name is Rachel. How about on these dates, we go to Mount Rainier, hike for three days. If you see a bear, you take one for the team. And he seemed very receptive to that idea. Fast forward to the trip to Seattle, and I ended up meeting him in a bar the night before. We looked at a map, we worked out that we probably wouldn't hate each other. And actually, we got on really, really well. So much to my friend's horror, I... Still went on this hiking trip with a person that I'd never met before. But you know what? I didn't die. We did see bears. He did remind me that he had offered to take one for the team. That was great. And we have kept in touch. So after Seattle and Portland, that is when I went to Houston to see family. And it was a trip I'll always remember fondly because it seemed like for the first time in over a decade. For reasons I won't go into here for the sake of brevity. But for the first time in over a decade, my family was an actual family again. Now, my standout memory from that trip was a road trip with my little brother on his day off from work. We had decided to make the most of the day, and we were going to get up at 4.30 a.m. to take a road trip to a place called Enchanted Rock, which is somewhere that we went as kids, and climb it. Both of our parents told us it was a dumbass idea. On account of my brother's piece of shit car being liable to break down, but we put a lot of that down to um, them being particular. Them, I say them. We put a lot of it down to my mother being a compulsive worrier. And at eight a.m., when our worrier mother sent us a text message to say, "Hope you're having fun. Love you," we could only really laugh as we sat in his broken down car. <laughs> at the side of the highway as we waited for the tow truck. We made it to Enchanted Rock in a rental, and eventually my brother managed to pick up his car and drive it back to Houston, but that's after I had flown back home. And despite everything that went wrong, there's nothing that I would change about that day. To, in a way, put less strain on my mother's nerves, my brother and I decided that he would accompany me for at least part of my delayed but freshly updated sabbatical plans, which were, hiking the PCT in April, 2018. Although heat, fatigue, and physical stress made my MS symptoms worse, so to clarify these being poor vision and lack of balance and leg weakness, my mother was perhaps understandably nervous about my planned trip into the wilderness for an extended period. The idea of my brother being my chaperone would probably help her relax a little. You guys, 2018 was gonna be my year, But this time, not just mine, my brother's too. Sure, I'd had to wait a little over a year, but that was just going to make this whole thing that much sweeter. But then something happened, and suddenly none of that mattered anymore. On October 22nd, 2017, exactly one year after I woke up with bad vision, I received a text message from my mother. All it said was, are you home? It's urgent. I need to talk to you. That's never a good sign. I'm still not ready to talk about what happened in great detail because I think in a way I'm still kind of processing it. My brother's death not only broke my heart, but it broke my spirit, something I don't think I've ever experienced before. Although I remember the 18 months following his death clearly enough, I don't recognize myself in those memories. And I'm amazed at times that I didn't push away all of my friends with my toxic negativity and my nonchalant disinterest in everything I once enjoyed. To anyone who's been in a similar place, it's maybe easy to see how a total disinterest in your own well-being can extend to your finances. It's taken a long time, but in the last year or so, I've finally been able to start appreciating life again, looking ahead making plans, feeling joy, taking care of myself. And taking care of myself has extended to slightly less exciting things like bills, but slightly less exciting things like bills and putting my life on hold, you know, just for a year, it'd be worth it. I went back to teaching, although uh, I admit that I was probably not at my best. I also took some life modeling gigs and I waitressed over my first summer back. But my debt was not disappearing as quickly as I needed it to, and so despite very serious concerns from my friends, I came up with the idea of renting out my closet on Airbnb. You guys, 2020 was going to be my year. One of my PCT buddies from the heavily condensed trip that I took as part of my grieving process had arranged to come and visit in April. I booked a 30-day, 200-hour yoga teacher training course in Barcelona in June. In July, I booked flights to Slovenia to go hiking in the Julian Alps in a bid to visit every place on this earth that has my brother's name. And in August, I was going to head to Switzerland before heading back just in time to be a bridesmaid at my friend's wedding, the same one I ditched to go hiking with a Tinder date in Washington. But I guess things come in threes. So I can only hope that this is the last time I have to press pause on life. In the meantime, there's time. As I try to keep abreast of current MS research, and in particular ways in which I can minimize relapse recovery time and give my body the best chance at being resilient, I've also read a lot about the human brain, specifically about ways in which one can improve their neuroplasticity or the brain's ability to change its connection and behavior and function as a response to sensory stimulation. Now, the idea is the more I treat my brain like a muscle and work it out by bombarding it with challenging or unexpected situations, the more of an Adonis I'm sculpting, able to withstand higher levels of damage and able to adapt more quickly. Now, obviously, apart from prolific dating, I figure hosting people from all walks of life in my hallway closet is as good a way as any of catapulting myself into situations where the unexpected can erupt. So, in addition to blitzing my personal debt, and paying for Swiss hiking trips, and also paying for Slovenian hiking trips, maybe, I'm priming my brain for any attacks from my idiot, self-destructive immune system. And since, for the foreseeable, I can't welcome any real guests into my closet, I'm inviting you to join me as I reflect on my hosting journey so far.